0: John chapter 17. If you have one of the black hardcover Bibles from the back, that's on page 903. We'll be reading verses 1 through 5. And as we read, please remember we're reading God's Word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Well, it is another new year, and people tend to do new things in a new year. How many of you have something new that you've, you've resolved to do, a goal you've set, maybe a new project you've taken on for this new year? Raise your hand. Anybody? Somebody shout out what new thing you hope to accomplish or do this year. I know you, you raised your hand. Who's, come on, come on. Start a tutoring business. A tutoring business. That's great. That's awesome. I, Oh, yeah. And good advertising. Well done. Well placed. Very nice. That's good. Um, anything else? What other new things? I started something new recently. I try, I tried, uh, I'm, I'm trying to take up running. I figured I'm a cyclist, so I'm pretty comfortable on a bike. Got, you know, good endurance. Running should be easy, right? Not true. <laughs> Not true. The muscles that you use seem to be completely different because I don't seem to have those. Um, but yeah, I've, uh, I've, I think I've, I, I just kind of dove in. I hope you don't start new things the way I start new things. The way I start new things is I get, I get an idea, and I think I know everything about the new thing, right, without really doing much research or laying a good foundation, and I just dive into it. And then in the case of running, I think I've had every running injury you can have in about three or four months. Um, so that's been interesting. So I've been learning as I go. I, I kind of do things wrong and then and then learn through that. But I hope you don't. I hope you don't start new things that way. Um, when you start something new, a new business, a new family. Um, I just have a blessing of being able to marry a, a new couple, and um, it's always my hope and and prayer that you that you know. What you're getting into, you know the person, you know the, the you know you understand whatever it is that this new thing that you're taking on. And, and it's my desire as we start this new series uh, for this new year that we would have a good foundation, that we would take the time uh, to build our church and to build our lives on a good foundation. And that's why we're starting in John chapter 17. Uh, this is called the High Priestly Prayer. It's the prayer that Jesus prays right before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and, and is betrayed and falsely con- accused, tried, convicted, um, crucified. And so this is, a, this is a key moment in our Lord's life. Um, Jesus is the head pastor of this church, and, and what he's about to pray is, is really a prayer for the church. This series is called Jesus' Prayer for His Church. And so um, we have a lot to learn about setting a good foundation for this next year in this church. This was actually the text that Luke preached from on our very first preview service. The very first uh, text that was ever preached in this body uh, was from John 17, and it was the first five verses that we're going to look at today. So hopefully many of you weren't there and you don't remember, because I'm sure I won't come close to to what he did. But uh, it's, it's it's a good place to start. It's a good place to start for a a strong foundation. A little context here. Jesus has just left the upper room. So the upper room is where he met with his disciples. Um, it, it, they had the Last Supper, which was kind of where we get our model for communion. And they, they all sat around and he taught and they, they ate uh, bread and drank wine together. It was a very intimate moment. And then they, they got up from there. They left that place and they left Jerusalem, which is where they were for the Last Supper. And they went down into the Kidron Valley, which still exists today. It's just a valley. It's a a very fertile valley. There were most likely uh, vines that you could see, and Jesus began to teach as they were walking through this valley to this hill on which the Garden of Gethsemane is, is located. So they're going through this valley, and, and he sees these vines, and he says, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. You need to abide in me. And he, the, the words that he says through the, the few chapters before we get to the prayer that we're going to look at today are really, really key, deep, deep words. It's one of my favorite passages in scripture. I'd, I'd commend it to you for your study over these next few weeks or months. Um, he touches on some incredible truths, and he knows he's, these are his last moments with his disciples. So he's going to pack this full of everything he wants them to hear. He wants them to understand. He talks about the importance of being connected with himself, with God, um, he talks about obedience and love and living well and living with courage. He talks about the presence of the Holy Spirit that will come and, and the ultimate victory that is ours. And then he finishes his instruction, kind of his famous last words, these, these last charges he offers to his disciples. And he turns his eyes to heaven and he prays. And he prays out loud. And so he wants us to hear. What he's about to say, he gives us a glimpse into kind of this intimate moment that he has with his father. If you had um, an opportunity, if you knew you were about to to leave the ones that you loved, if you knew you were about to die, and you had a moment with them, what would you say? How would you pray? This is this is these are good questions, and this is what we get to look at uh, in the life of Jesus today, and so. He, he says these words, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. I, I don't know about you, but when I read that, it, it's just, it seems a little strange to me. I mean, he just talked about abiding in him and, and love and obedience and all these great, these great ideas. And then he prays, God, glorify me. Really? Really? Like, of all the things to pray, that just feels, it, it feels a little self-promoting. Don't you think? I mean, now, the, the words of Jesus are oftentimes misunderstood and hard to understand, and I, I think this is, definitely falls in that category. So we're going to look at this and try to understand w- why he's praying this way. But when I first read it, it, it feels like it's, it's a little self-promoting. And, and we inherently don't really care for people who seek their own glory, do we? I grew up um, a sports fan. My dad's uh, from Chicago, and we grew up watching a lot of Chicago sports on TV here. And uh, I don't know when it became trendy after you dunk the ball on someone and just humiliate them to scream like uh, like an ape and beat your chest. But somehow, since it, it, that that has become that has become a, a a big thing here. Take a look at this picture. This this is what you see now in professional sports. So not not only was it humiliating enough that he just slam dunked the ball. I mean, you would think that would be fairly glorifying. I don't know if you all have had that experience, but it's it's pretty fun. Um, but now we're gonna we're gonna just make sure everyone knows how great we are. We're gonna scream and beat our chest. What what is that? We we don't typically like people who seek their own glory. Um, I, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to any of the Hall of Fame speeches when, when guys get inducted, but there's a lot of goofy, like, goofiness that goes on there where they're, they're literally, like, they're, they're in the Hall of Fame. Like, there's a, there's a bust made of them that will sit in whatever sport it is. You know, the, they're enshrined, and yet a lot of the speeches, they're still trying to convince you of how great they are. We, we don't like that. It's the plot of every, almost every movie, right? You have the self-seeking, self-inflating, arrogant character who runs over all the little people and, you know, is wreaking havoc, and then the, the humble hero who comes in and saves the day. So that's why this strikes me as strange. Jesus lived his life as a sacrifice for others. Why would he now, at this, at this crucial moment, pray for his own glory, we're going to take a look at that, and we're going to ask a couple questions that I think will give us some insight into, into why he prays this way. Um, the first question we're going to look at it may seem a little obvious, but the question is, who is Jesus? Um, and there are lots of ways to answer this question. Lots of good answers that have been given throughout uh, literally the millennia of the church. Um, but there's a, couple, there's a couple aspects of who Jesus is, in particular why he came, that I want to look at today that I think will help us shed some light on why he would pray for his glory in this moment. Uh, the, first, the first aspect of who Jesus is is that Jesus is a mediator. A mediator is someone who intercedes and reconciles two parties in conflict intercedes and reconciles, two parties in conflict. Jesus came as a mediator to reconcile two parties. Who were the two parties? God and mankind. We're all in the same boat. He came to, to intercede and to reconcile. In verse 4, you can see this. You can see a picture of this. He says, he's speaking to God. He said, I glorified you on earth. I made you known. The first element of, of being a mediator is one who intercedes. Um, you can see here on the screen that, uh, if you would advance the next slide, Inter- to intercede is to educate. My dad's a, an attorney, and he, he does a lot of mediations. So uh, it's not uncommon if you have a grievance, you'll go to an attorney and you'll say, hey, represent me in this matter. I want to sue this person, or I want to get this, this, this issue figured out. He negotiates a lot of uh, Disputes over the price of land and things like that. And so, most of the, most of the cases that he, he helps with are, never go to court. They're solved in mediation. And so, what happens is they get the two parties together, and it's the job of the mediator to educate the people in the room on where everyone stands and all the evidence that's involved so that everyone has a clear picture. Of what 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 is involved in the, in the conflict that's trying to be solved, and more often than not, like ninety percent of the time, they solve out of court. They 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 they, uh, they finish it out of court because it's it's very expensive to go to court. And once you go to court, kind of the opportunity to, to mediate is is over. It's it's going down, right? So it's it's a really good thing Jesus came as our mediator because if we waited till judgment day, we'd be in big trouble. Um, so, so th- there's, there's this idea, there's this element in, within mediation of education. And Jesus came not to educate God, but to educate us. God understands where we're at, but we didn't know. We didn't have a really good idea of our condition. You see, the religious people of that day thought they could be good enough to earn favor with God. They thought they could do certain things or um, behave in such a way or dress a certain way or eat a certain way to, to somehow bridge this gap, to, to, to fix this conflict that we had with God. And Jesus came and said, no, it's not good enough. You've got to be perfect. That was part of the education. But he didn't just educate us as to the reality of our conflict with God. He also reconciles us. And that's the next Piece of what it means to be a mediator. A mediator reconciles or offers restitution. We see this in Romans 5.18. Let's look at this together. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so the act of righteousness, one act of righteousness, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The first act of restitution, of payment to settle this grievance between the two parties in conflict, us and God, is that Jesus lived a righteous life on our behalf. That's the first thing he did for us. The second thing he did we can see in First Peter 2. Let's look at this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus went between these two parties in conflict and he offered restitution with his righteous life and with a perfect death died in our place. He bore our sins in his body. He's the perfect mediator. So does this give us some insight into why Jesus might pray for his glory? Well, maybe, but I think there's more to see here. The second uh, way that you could answer this question of who is Jesus is Jesus is our big brother. Now, that might seem a little strange, but uh, Romans 8, 29, we'll, we'll read this together, uh, talks about this very thing. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus is our big brother. Now, this image is a little more personal. I think, when I think of a mediator, I think of someone that's, a, that's far off. You know, education, intercession, but, but a big brother—that's somebody, that's somebody that you know, that you you goof around, along you know around with. You get you get to know. Um, when I think of, of of older siblings and and their relation to younger siblings, if we're if we're Christ's brothers. And he's our firstborn. He's a big brother. Um, I, think of, I think of, obviously, my family. I have an 8-year-old. She's my oldest. And it's amazing to me how the younger kids do, in fact, grow up to be like the older siblings. Um, I was looking with my wife at pictures of our kids, and it's, it's crazy. You can take the pictures of the, the older ones when they were little, and, and they, look, they look very similar to the kids that are little right now, the younger siblings. Um, Luke's mentioned before that we have a pretty loud house. We're just a loud family. They don't get that from their mother, unfortunately. They get that from me. This is God's way of paying me back for all the years of, of craziness that I caused my parents. But what we noticed is uh, all of our kids go through a stage in, in their development. We call it the pterodactyl stage. And uh, it's about age twelve months to eighteen months. They scream like a pterodactyl, <laughs> which we've never heard a pterodactyl scream, but you can imagine it's pretty ridiculous. Um, and they're not upset; nothing's wrong. They just decided, "I'm a Brazelton. It's my pterodactyl stage. I'm going to follow in line in the line of my older siblings and scream wherever, whenever, wherever, whenever, whenever I, I find it fit." You know, a lot of times we'll be in public. People wonder if we 're killing our children. no, they just scream that 's just what we do um, they 're also extremely verbal, extremely verbal. Uh, most of my kids start talking started talking really, really young. Uh, they start walking really late, like like eighteen months ish which, which is fine, um, but they start talking really early, and they don 't stop yet they haven 't stopped so uh, we've seen that, the, the youngers following, following in line with the older. They're very inquisitive. They like to ask lots of questions. Um, they also do pretty well in school. So far, the younger kids have followed in, in, the, in the path of, of the older. And what's my point in all this? My point is that Jesus is our big brother, and we are growing up to be like him. Ephesians 4 says this. Let's look at this together. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, this is a charge for us. This is something for us to work on, but it's also a promise that God has begun a good work in you, and he's going to be faithful to carry it into completion. You will grow up into the head to be like your big brother, and that leads me to my second point under this idea of a big brother. He's our firstborn, and we're heirs with him, Now, this this might seem strange. This might almost seem too good to be true, but there's actually a wealth of scriptural support for this concept. I want to share some of it with you. Romans 8 says this, For you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs, with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Colossians 3 says this, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And Romans 8.30 says, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. None is lost. If you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith and trust in him and the the Holy Spirit has indwelt you, you will be glorified in Christ. You will grow up to be like your big brother. Pretty amazing stuff. Now, there's, there's more. You could, you could do a study for quite a while on this idea. Revelation 20 says we'll reign with him. Ephesians 2 says we've been raised up and seated with him. Ephesians 1 says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does that mean? I don't know. That's, that's language beyond our comprehension, but it's something Great. And it's in this idea, it's with this understanding of Jesus and who he is as our big brother, we can begin to understand why he would pray a seemingly self-exalting prayer at this time in his ministry. He says, Father, glorify me, knowing full well he's going to secure our place as his brothers and sisters to share in that very glory, the glory for which we were created and the glory for which all of our hearts long. Does that make sense? So now we can ask the question, what is this glory that he's praying about? My suspicion is that if I were to ask many of you in this room, define glory, we'd get almost as many different answers. And it's because the term is a deep term, it's a heavy term, but it's not, it's not terribly clear in our minds what is meant by the idea of glory when we read it in the scriptures? So I want to I explore this a little bit, and I'm going to do something that uh, I guess we don't do that often. I'm going to follow a text, an extra-biblical text, but it's, but it's certainly um, supported with a lot of verses, and we'll take a look at that. But it's, it's a text called The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis. It's actually a sermon that uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, a former theologian, he wrote in the early 1940s, and I think it's phenomenal. I love C.S. Lewis. I love his writing. I love the way he thinks. I love the way he introduces ideas and, and helps you kind of chew through the, the intricacies and the nuances of of what it is that he's talking about. And this particular sermon, if you're interested, I would highly recommend it to you. You can go online, you can search, Google search the weight of glory, and you can just download it. It's it's available at no charge. It's eight pages long, so it's not long. I actually considered, I asked Christy, do you think I could just get up and preach this guy's sermon? Because that would be really great. Uh, but she said no. So um, we're going to take a look at, at kind of his explanation from a biblical foundation of what this glory is that is all of our inheritance, all of us who are in Christ. Well, the first, the first word he uses, and he uses two, two ideas or two words to describe glory. The first word he uses is fame. Now, that might seem a little strange until you begin to define fame. He defines it as to be known. Right? That's what fame is. If you're famous, you're known. But he takes it further. He says, to be delighted in, approved of, appreciated, praised. How many of you desire this? If I asked if you desire to be famous, you probably wouldn't say, not many of you prayed, woke up this morning and said, God, make me famous, right? But, But how many of you desire to be known, delighted in, approved of, appreciated, and praised? I certainly do. I would submit it's a basic human reality. We're all created with a desire for this type of glory. Um, I I did a a Google search of uh, the words I just want to be good. Kind of tying off the idea of being delighted in, approved of, appreciated. And it was amazing. It was heartbreaking really what came up. Billions of Search results came back, and I saw examples of of young ladies who cut themselves because they don't have the approval of their parents. Of pop stars who do just about everything and anything to justify themselves, but it never fills them. Of business professionals who work with all they have to make something good, hoping it will confirm their worthiness of praise. And yet, no one seems to really find this, at least not in its purest form c s. Lewis calls this desire, this desire for approval and acceptance uh, the pleasure of of the creature of the inferior. Let me share a quote with you. This is a, a long quote, but stay with me it 's really good. I promise um, we 're going to read through it probably four or five slides. Um, here's what he says, and he, he's, he's exploring the idea of glory um, being this, this concept of fame. He says, When I began to look in this matter, I was shocked to find such different Christians as Milton Johnson and Thomas Aquinas, you don't need to know who they are, taking heavenly glory, quite frankly, in the sense of fame or good report, but not fame confirmed by our fellow creatures, fame with God. Approval, or I might say appreciation by God. And then, when I had thought it over, I saw that this very view was scriptural. Nothing can eliminate from the parable the divine accolade, well done, thou good and faithful servant. With that, a good deal of what I had been thinking all my life fell down like a house of cards. I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child, and nothing is so obvious in a child, not in a conceited child, but in a good child, as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. Not only in a child either, but even in a dog or a horse. Apparently, what what I had mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding what is in fact the humblest, the most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures, nay, the specific pleasure of the inferior the pleasure of a beast before men, a child before its father, a pupil before his teacher, a creature before his creator. And then he says this, If God is satisfied with the work, the work may be satisfied with itself. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. This is what we understand uh, this glory that is our future to, to mean, at least in part. That we would have acceptance. That we would find, that God would find pleasure in us. Let me ask you, what are you trying to do to, to fill this need in your life? to achieve this type of approval? Who are you trying to impress? What group of people are you, do you long for acceptance from? Who are you trying to please? I do believe we all long for this. I know for me, one of the, one of the areas I struggle are with the people that I really respect. And uh, on Christmas Eve, some of you were here on the, the first service on Christmas Eve, we had some technical difficulties, which I kind of oversee the production in the, in the room. And we have a great team of people. And honestly, I'm not kidding. I make way more mistakes than anybody else on our team. Um, but we had some tough technical difficulties on Christmas Eve. And who do I see standing in the back when it's kind of falling down around us? Not exactly. I exaggerate. I'm a little perfectionist. But um, anyway, I see the lead pastor of Olive of Redemption, Tyler Johnson, a friend and someone I respect and long for his approval of. Um, and that was, that was a struggle for me. That confronted this need in my life. And it was a moment for me to say, alright God, I know that I've, you in Christ have given me the acceptance and the approval I need. It's not found in the approval of man. It's found in the approval of you. But, but where are you longing for this approval and what are you doing to try to find it? If you're looking for it anywhere else than from God first, you'll be disappointed. It won't fill you. You long for approval, yes, but not from men. You long for approval from your true superior, from God. Take a look at 1 Peter 2 here. It says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You can offer sacrifices acceptable to God. If that doesn't blow your mind, your understanding of who God is is woefully inadequate. On our own, we can't can't even hope to be acceptable to God. But in Christ we're acceptable, we're precious, we're chosen, just as he says here. This type of glory, as we begin to understand it and we realize that that this is our future as well as our present reality, it satisfies the deep longing in our souls for approval. When When you find yourself pining for the acceptance of men, remind yourself that you are delighted in by God himself. If God is satisfied with the work, the work can be satisfied in itself. The second way that Lewis defines glory is with the term luminosity. When when something is glorious, it shines. Now, that seems strange. Was Jesus praying that God would make him a human light bulb? Is that what our future is, just to kind of shine like like a Christmas light display? Well, let's dig a little deeper. He further defines it as brightness or splendor. And and we can we can see this when something is glorious. What do we say? We say it it shines, it shines with glory. Um, think think of a a beautiful woman. There there's songs written about this and and poems written about this. And I can think of when Christy was coming down the aisle at our wedding. She shone, with glory. She radiated. She was beautiful. Or maybe maybe you can relate to the idea of nature and seeing this this splendor and this radiance in nature. I remember we went to the Grand Canyon uh, eight years ago, and I got to we hiked down, camped at the bottom, and hiked out. And that morning, when the sun rose and the canyon came alive, it was like it was shining. It was glorious. It was splendid. We see this idea of glory being luminosity or brightness in musical perfection i've i've experienced a few times um not personally but but i've listened to to people or at events where, where just everything was beautiful musically all the harmonies linked in uh, the overtones were literally harmonic overtones were ringing in the rafters it was a perfect display of musical beauty and it it shined it shone with glory you can see it in, uh, in the physical world. If you've ever seen a flawless diamond, I uh, remember when I was shopping for Christie's ring, and we certainly weren't able to purchase one, but they had one on display there. It, it was amazing. It was amazing to see the glory of something perfected. It shines. So that, that, that is what this type of glory is referring to. But what is it, how does it relate to us Lewis says this, we do not want merely to see beauty. Though God knows even that is bounty enough, we want something else which, is, which hardly can be put into words. We want to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. Now, this I know this sounds a little weird, but, but hear me out here. We try to make ourselves beautiful, do we not? I don't know how many billions of dollars are spent on the cosme- in the cosmetic industry in our country, but, but we want to be beautiful. I know my girls love putting on flowery dresses and walking around poofy and twirly and being told they're beautiful because we want to be beautiful. God, God created this desire for glory in us. We try to capture it when we see it. We try to take it in. I mentioned that time in, uh, in, at the Grand Canyon. I took pictures to try to capture that, but when I got home and looked at the film, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't translate. It wasn't there. It didn't move me the way I had experienced it in person. I know one of, one of the most glorious experiences for me is, is, is taking a, a good bike ride out in the mountains in Arizona after it rains. I love the smell of the desert after it rains. There are a lot of things I don't love about the desert, but that's one of the good things. And, and when I ride in those, in those environments, or when I'm just walking around, I find myself taking these deep breaths, trying to take it in, trying to take it into myself and capture it. And I can never breathe deep enough, and I can never hold my breath long enough to capture that glory. Here's what Lewis says about this phenomenon, this reality that we struggle, we desire to take this glory into ourselves, but we can't. He says, at present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then they will put on its glory, or rather, that greater glory, of which nature is only the first sketch. You must not think that I am putting forward any heathen fancy of being absorbed into nature. Nature is mortal. We shall outlive her. When all the suns and nebulae have passed away, each one of you will still be alive. Nature is only the image, the symbol, but it is the symbol Scripture invites me to use. We are summoned to pass in through nature, beyond her, into that splendor which she fitfully reflects, and in there, in beyond nature, we shall eat of the tree of life. At present, if we are reborn in Christ, the Spirit in us lives directly on God, but the mind and still the body receives life from Him at a thousand removes through our ancestors, through our food, through the elements you get what he 's saying he 's saying God God poured life He pours life into us physically through through the, the distant act of his creation, but it, it kind of it 's filtered through our ancestors and, and through you know, the earth and the things that we eat. It's not, it's not a pure experience. He says, um, the faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the worlds are what we now call physical pleasures. And even thus filtered, they are too much for our present management. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead of that stream, of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating. Get what he's saying? If if even as far removed from God as we are, we experience these physical pleasures and can't even handle them, oftentimes, what would it be to taste the fountainhead of that stream? He says, Yet that I believe is what lies before us. We will experience the glory of God, we will shine. We will be able to take in and reflect and be this beautiful glory that we read about, that we're talking about here. Matthew 13 says this, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Do we take that to mean we'll we'll be a light bulb in the kingdom of our father? That would be cool. No, it's much more than that. What physical pleasures do you turn to to try to fill this longing for joy? Food, sex, drink, drugs, family, friends, sleep, exercise, comfort, TV, sports. Many of these things are good things, and they're, they're, a, they're an image, they're a reflection of, of the good gifts that God gives, but they're not the fountainhead. It, here's, here's a good way to empty something of its joy. Discern if you've elevated it above something else in your life, That if you've got your priorities wrong. If you've got your priorities wrong, the good things that God gives for us to kind of sense the glory of his presence will, will surely um, fall short. Here's a list of priorities. This is just a basic one I made before the service. But these are, these are our priorities according to the scriptures. God should be first in our lives, then our spouse, children, and family, work, church, and then recreation, and whatever else you might put on that list. But if you get one of these out of order, the glory's removed. And so I would ask you examine your life, examine your choices, examine your priorities. This type of glory, the type of glory we're talking about, satisfies the deep longing for joy and comfort. And happiness within each of us. When you find yourself tempted to go after lesser pleasures that are a crooked distortion of the glorious transcendent joy emanating from the presence and the person of God Himself, remember that this glory is your future. It's your present reality as you live life through Him. And the last question that I'd like to examine here briefly this morning is where is this glory found? if this is really and truly what the scriptures represent it to be, if it really answers those deep longings of our heart, longing, the longing for acceptance, the longing to be delighted in, and the longing to, to be splendid, to be beautiful, where is it found? Why are so many people not able to find it? Well, this is where I believe the, the heart of this passage uh, speaks to. Look at verse 3 here. Uh, before we read it, when I say the word eternal life or salvation, what comes to mind? For, for many of us, we think about heaven. We think about living forever. We think about maybe no longer sinning or, or finding happiness. We think about these things that we've talked about today, the, the glory of fame and luminosity. Um, Let's see how Jesus defines it because he is referring to this glory, I believe, but he defines it in an interesting way. He says, and this is eternal life. He's going to define it for us. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Where is this glory found? Knowing God. That's where it's found. There's no substitute And it's not found in knowing about God, by the way. A lot of us know about God. We can tell you lots of things about his character and about the way he works in the world. But do you know him? Do you spend time with him? Many of you know about my wife. You you know, she's this cute little gal sitting over there holding Harper. She plays Frisbee on Saturday mornings and loves it. You might know she's a good cook. But do you know her? Like, I know her? Hopefully not. (laughs) No. There's no substitute here. If you want to experience eternal life, now and forever, knowing God is the way to get it. That's it. Not going to church, not taking communion, not getting baptized, not memorizing scripture, not praying. It's knowing God. It's a personal relationship with him the kind of relationship that makes you long for more of him and hate sin. It doesn't make you perfect. You certainly will continue to struggle in that area, but it makes you long for the things we're talking about here. And so my challenge for us, the foundation that I would like us to build our church on and our lives on every day is the foundation of knowing God. Spend time with him, not because it makes you righteous before us or you'll impress people, but because you get to spend time with God. And if there's not a desire in your heart for that, ask him to put it there. He's the source of that desire. Pray a prayer like, God, I want to want you. Change my heart. And we'll see what he does. Let's pray together. God, you are the fountain of living waters. You are the source of life that we all long for. And Lord, we thank you that you glorified your son so that his brothers could experience the glory of your presence, the glory of your acceptance, the glory of your beauty in return. God, let us not substitute anything for a relationship with you, a real relationship. God, not a confession, but a relationship. We long for you. We need you. Be close to us, we pray, through Jesus. It's in his great name we pray, amen.